A quick word before we kick off the show. If you want to dive deeper into the trends we're covering on this podcast, make sure to subscribe to the Latitude Media and Canary Media newsletters. Our news teams at Latitude and Canary have partnered up to make these shows, Carbon Copy and Catalyst, and you should follow the work of our journalist teams at the forefront of the trends that we talk about every week on the pods. For Canary Media's coverage on how the world is decarbonizing, go to canarymedia.com and click Get the Newsletter on the homepage. And for Latitude Media's business-to-business coverage of frontier clean energy trends, go to latitudemedia.com slash newsletter. We're going to have links to both in the show notes, so make sure you subscribe to both newsletters to get uh, more news in your inbox along with these pods. And now, on to the show. From the studios of Latitude Media and Canary Media. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst. When you sent over your list, I was ready to like disagree with you 100% on this one. And now, upon your explanation, I'm, I'm ready to disagree <laughs> like 25%, I think. Well, good. I got 75% of the way there. <laughs> well, my guest or partner on this episode stole the joke that I was going to use in my opening monologue for his own opening monologue. So I'll just come out and say it. Here's a Fultz Catalyst crossover. I'm Shail Khan. I invest in revolutionary climate technologies at Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So this is a fun one. Uh, I've been reading Dave Roberts' stuff, uh, his writing for, I don't know, 15 plus years. I, I don't know how long he's been at it, at least as long as I have. Uh, he was at Grist for a long time and then at Vox, and now he's got his own shingle he put up under the name Volts. He's been kind of a ubiquitous presence in writing and thinking about climate issues and also politics for as long as I've been in the game. And he's got a pod that if you've listened to it, you won't be surprised to hear that I really vibe with. He and I have, I think, different lenses on the world, as you'll hear, but we share similar curiosities and we think about a lot of the same questions. Anyway, it's long overdue, but here's our first ever crossover with Dave's podcast, Folds. We talked about overhyped and underhyped trends and stories in climate tech and more beyond that. We didn't have enough time, so we're going to have to do more. Also, before we begin, as you've heard before, I am hosting an Ask Me Anything episode where I answer any questions that you've got about state of climate tech or individual technologies or the markets or whatever. Just send us questions. Uh, you could tag us on Twitter or LinkedIn with the hashtag AskCatalyst. That's hashtag AskCatalyst. You can also leave us a voicemail at 919-808-5832 or email us at catalyst at latitudemedia.com. And for now, here's Dave. All right, here we are. I'm here with Shail Khan, uh, the host of Catalyst. Shail, uh, welcome to the greatest crossover event in podcast history. Oh, man, you re- I, I had already written down that joke yeah, for my mana. <laughs> I had written down that literal joke for my monologue. Now I got to come up with something else. It's the infinity war of podcasts uh, for nerds. So, yeah, we've been, um, you know, uh, Shale, I've been listening to Catalyst for a long time, a big fan. And uh, we've been talking for a long time now how we ought to do something, do some sort of crossover, uh, have some sort of chat since we're, uh, especially since we're both quasi under Canary now. So uh, what we decided on was to chat a little bit about the the clean energy landscape via the lens of a couple of 
what we feel are overhyped trends or technologies and a couple that we think are underhyped. And so we're just going to walk through things that way and, uh, and, and have a little chat along the way about what we're seeing and doing. So Shale, are you uh, ready to go? I am. But before we start, can I ask you a question? Yeah, please. So when I was trying to come up with my overhyped and underhyped things, I was having like a surprisingly <laughs> difficult time determining what I think is overhyped or underhyped relative to whom, right? Yes. Like, you know, I kept coming up with things where I was like, things that are overhyped to the people who care about energy on Twitter, which is not representative right. of anything important, you know? <laughs> uh, so I was trying to figure out like, you know, overhyped or underhyped by whom and to whom. And I don't know if you struggle with the same thing. I did struggle with that. We do live in a weird, tiny little insular world in which uh, many things are overhyped that normal people have never heard of and vice versa. So, uh, you know, I think I did a mix. So you'll just have to explain the context of your answer while you're answering. You have to explain underhyped or overhyped to whom while you're answering. Some of mine are are definitely overhyped or underhyped to to our audience. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which, a, right. which, as you say, does not mean much to the wider world since we uh, both have audiences of, uh, you know, energy nerds. Handsome, handsome, virile, unusually intelligent uh, uh, energy nerds of course. in our audiences. Yeah, I also struggled a little bit with like, there's some things that I think might be overhyped because I overhyped them, <laughs> you know, which is a bit I know. circular. But. I know. One of my underhyped is something that I have been relentlessly trying to hype for years, but I just don't think I have the hype power to to bring it up to the to the hype level where it would be sufficiently hyped. So we'll we'll discuss those along the way. So um, we're starting then with your first underhyped trend. So tell us what it is and, and perhaps to whom <laughs> it, yeah. is, it is underhyped. Okay, so I think this is underhyped by almost everybody outside of a, a relatively small corner of the clean energy world that's like trying to pound the drum as loud as possible about this, which is um, the trend of onshoring of manufacturing in clean energy supply chains. Onshoring, and I guess I would add nearshoring or, or friendshoring, but predominantly predominantly onshoring. So let me, let me contextualize a little bit, which is, you know, I know you were around for the whole solar story as solar was just starting to mature, but like the, the short version of that story in my mind, if you go way back in solar history, was Japan was really the first market that both um, installed any meaningful amount of solar and produced it, right? And you had these companies like Sharp and, and others way back in the 90s. And Japan had this feed-in tariff for residential solar. And that was that was small and steady for a long time and, and not a whole lot happened. And then what really kick-started the solar market was demand in Germany first because of their feed-in tariff. And then in the US, predominantly in California, thanks to the California Solar Initiative and the, the renewable portfolio standards here, and then it, it spread through other parts of Western Europe as other countries like Spain and the Czech Republic and Italy and, and others started introducing their own policies. But demand was clearly coming from Western Europe. Manufacturing followed briefly, right? In Germany in particular, right? You had some of the big um, early solar manufacturers were German companies. And the U.S. looked like it might be on the verge of a domestic manufacturing renaissance, largely of the like, next generation of technologies, thin film solar. And then, of course, everybody knows how the story ended up playing out, which is that 
basically all of that manufacturing moved to China and then kind of spread into Southeast Asia as trade barriers started to get in, enacted and, and has stayed there, right? And the thing that I think is under hype that people don't appreciate starts with solar but doesn't end with solar, which is that thanks predominantly to the Inflation Reduction Act, but not exclusively, we are seeing a crazy renaissance in domestic manufacturing of clean energy components. I woke up this morning to another announcement. This is Canadian Solar, which despite the name is really a Chinese solar manufacturer setting up a five gigawatt cell manufacturing facility in, in Indiana. Yeah, it's crazy. They're one after the other these days. It's, it, I've, I've almost become numb to them already. And it's only like a year, a year, but it's just uh, one after the other. That's the key point, right? We're, we're barely over a year since the IRA. And, and yeah, it's solar cells and modules, but obviously the, the battery and EV supply chain is the other place this is playing out in a huge way. And it's just, it's an enormous amount. And we've never seen anything like this in the history of clean energy. Yeah, it's, uh, this is one of the things I struggle to convey to people outside our world. I think, you know, I think it's gotten out that IRA is a climate bill, but I do not think it is appreciated the the sort of brashness or <laughs> the, the sheer ambition involved in attempting to stand up a, a domestic supply chain for these things out of almost nothing, right? And it's uh, it's just a huge conjuring feat with accomplished with a boatload of money, <laughs> it's, and it's happening right in front of us. It is quite remarkable, though. So I do I do wonder. I do wonder, as big as the growth seems from our end, since we're starting from a relatively, you know, sort of desiccated manufacturing base, as as people have been complaining about for years, do you think we're going to get to a meaningful chunk? I mean, China is like 90, 95% on most of these, most of these materials, most of these manufacturing, most of these supply chains. I mean, what other than... You know, it brings us jobs and it, it, it employs a lot of people in a lot of areas that are hurting. And so it's good for that reason. Manufacturing is good. But do you think we're going to be able to build up enough of the manufacturing on our shores that we can throw weight around in the actual market? Or do you think it's more of like an insurance policy we're doing? What's I, 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 I struggle to, to, to conceive the scale here that we're shooting for. Yeah, and I don't think it's going to be consistent across various parts of the supply chain, right? Like we, we may end up, assembling a lot of our EV battery packs in North America. But that doesn't mean that we're going to be producing all of our lithium chemicals here, for example, right? There's places where China's stranglehold on supply chain is, is stronger than other places. Rare earth elements is another one, right? Like China's super dominant and it's going to take a lot for us to, to play a big role there. But in other places, like I said, battery, uh, assembly and, you know, maybe solar, interestingly enough, like we've got a ways to go there. Now, to be clear, I don't think there's a future wherein the U.S. produces as much of any of these things as China does, but we don't need to if our point is to, you know, get high on our own supply, basically. It's resilience, right? Mostly. It's just sort of having a little buffer in case China tries to to play games. I think that's how, sort of how it's being viewed in the administration. Which is happening, right? Like we just yeah. saw China just announced that it's going to um, curb or at least require licensing of exports of graphite to to other countries. That's a big deal. Graphite is the predominant anode. And they, and they utterly, 
utterly dominate graphite. It's like 99%, I think, on, on, on graphite. It's something uh, ludicrous. Exactly. So I think the geopolitical element of this is, is definitely a dry... It's the combination of the geopolitics and the China thing, along with the economic development in you know regions that need it thing that make this so attractive. And plus, if, you know, just not to rant, but like here we have in this country, we've been complaining and complaining about um, about parts of the country that have been hollowed out by globalization, right? Especially a cliche now. And those parts have gone red. It's the white working class. It's angry at Democrats because of globalization, blah, blah, blah. So here like is a, a, a huge multi-hundred billion dollar, very direct effort to reverse that, to send, to get manufacturing going back in exactly those parts of the country. Like you've seen the maps. It's These are red areas where these jobs are going. Here we have a multi-billion dollar effort precisely targeted at reviving manufacturing precisely in those areas. And and it's like uh you can't get the you can't get the news to talk about it. <laughs> like I think that's true of I mean you you said you think people will get up that IRA is a climate bill. I'm not sure I think yeah, people well, you pay any attention to IRA. Might be at optimistic. This point. Yeah. Okay. Well, we could talk about that forever because another aspect of that is the sort of uh, sort of Europe being, um, you know, kind of have its butt up on its shoulders about our our industrial policy and our supposed protectionism and the sort of trade tensions that this is sparking with Europe. But we can't get too uh, sucked into it. Yeah. <laughs> we've got a okay. lot. We've got a lot of items to get through. Yeah. Save that one. Okay. So that's my first underhyped. What about you? What's your first underhyped trend or technology? Well, this one people will laugh at me. About this one, as as you did when I emailed it, but but my uh, my first underhyped is thermal storage. Anyone who's been listening to either of our yeah, I was going to say you and I have both been hyping this one. Yes. So I know this is the one where you're reflecting a failure on our collective. I part. know, I know, a, a failure of, of our uh, uh, scale. I think this. I think this deserves. Um, I'll say this right now: thermal storage is, is having a little bit of a moment in our audiences, right? In in our energy world, in our sort of kind of nerd circles. But I personally think that it is eventually going to be a sufficiently big piece of the puzzle that it's going to sort of um, escape our world and and become, you know, like I think I think normal people can sort of group around with batteries now. Like I think normal people get, oh, you have wind and solar, you need some batteries. I think that's like escaped our world into the general understanding. I think thermal batteries are going to play a big role in this for the simple reason, as you know, you interviewed, we both interviewed the head of, of Rondo. I, I interviewed the head of Antora. I don't know if you talked to him too. I think the reason it's going to be a big enough deal that even normies will hear about it is that it is going to be this kind of skeleton key that unlocks the decarbonization of industrial heating, industrial heating and cooling, which is, you know, one of the big, uh, quote unquote, difficult to decarbonize sectors, this this sector that everybody's worrying and fretting about and tearing their hair out about, like, you know, we know how to do, we know how to do electricity, we know how to do transportation, we know how to do home heating and cooling, industry is the big unsolved problem. And I just like, I don't, I'm not sure the news has gotten out that I just don't think it's unsolved anymore. Like, I think thermal batteries alone get you some large chunk of it, 80% or whatever. There are lots of process emissions in some of these processes that still have to be hashed out. And by the way, Canary is in the midst of running 
a great series of articles about exactly this, about concrete and steel and the specifics of how to decarbonize them. But basically, if you think of replacing for a given industrial application, replacing a natural gas pipeline and a natural gas boiler with an electricity pipeline, <laughs> an electricity line, and a thermal battery, they get you basically the same thing. And so, voila, they're like half the final energy we use is heat. You know, half of that is industrial industrial heat. Voila, there's your industrial heat. That it, To me, thermal, I mean, in addition to just being delightful technologically, I love the whole, just the simplicity of, um, you know, heating up a box of rocks <laughs> until you need the heat. I, I love the, I love the technology of it. It's also, I, I don't feel like the news has gotten out. It also basically like tackles the industrial heat problem and, and, and there's not a ton left over after this, I think. So I have one comment and then two questions for you on this one. So comment is I obviously generally agree with you. We, you and I have both been very bullish on thermal storage, listeners to this podcast, and for full disclosure, know that we're investors in Rondo. The The way that we think about it actually is for your industrial heat, you you end up, the world ends up splitting into two categories. There's high temperature industrial heat and then low temperature industrial heat. I think for high temperature industrial heat, thermal storage is awesome and, and exactly as you said, may end up being the solution. For low temperature industrial heat, you may just be able to electrify directly. We we, we like heat pumps uh, yeah, yeah, for right, low temperature right, right. industrial heat. So you, you kind of split the world that way. My first question for you, uh, thermal storage is not a new concept. These companies are new, and they have new one of the oldest uh, in all of energy, really. But but you know, the, there was a wave of excitement around thermal batteries maybe ten years ago, and and I'd say two things were different about those attempts than the new ones. One is the materials they were using. They're often stuff like molten salts that are that are highly corrosive and tough to handle. But but two is that they were all talking about electrical to electrical storage, right? So they were. Yes serving the function that a lithium-ion battery would serve on the grid, albeit maybe with different duration and costs and so on. What you're talking about and what we find most exciting as well is a different thing, right? You turn electricity into heat, you store it as heat, you deliver it as heat rather than turning it back to electricity. Is that... Which gets you which gets you way higher efficiency. Like you can get 95% of your heat back out. That's the key point. Yeah. and And I think that's what when, when I think when people talk about thermal batteries or thermal storage, if they're not already clued into this, they're thinking of a, a battery that goes power to power. And we're talking about a battery that goes power to heat, but has storage in the middle. Yeah, you got to start thinking about heat. I mean, a lot of my answers today, and I think a lot of the pod lately, a lot of both our pods lately are, are, are about heat, about just like, you got to start thinking about heat more. It's kind of the forgotten energy, like saving it, using it, reusing it, you know, using waste heat, all this kind of things. Like, uh, so yes, I agree. It's using heat for heat that is going to be the, the, the sort of, um, killer app because another thing I think this unlocks and, and we could do a whole pot on this too, but I'll just sort of kind of throw it out there and mention it is this enables, you know, it's very, very difficult right now. The most difficult part of building electricity generation is getting hooked up to the grid. It's not cost or financing or anything anymore. It's just waiting for your slot on the grid. So the beauty of this concept is you can just build some renewables out in the middle of nowhere. And instead of hooking them up to the grid at all, you just hook them up to your heat battery, right? Store all the energy they store as heat and then use the heat directly in some industrial application 
Then all of a sudden, you have renewables providing heat that do not have to go through the grid, do not have to wait for grid interconnections. And if you can make that work, that's a huge, huge, huge new market for renewable energy developers that they can just start building now and they don't have to wait in interconnection queues. To me, that's uh, one of the most exciting aspects of it. Yeah, I mean, 100%. And just to add on to why that would be such a big deal, as it stands right now, if you're trying to develop renewable energy, if you're trying to develop any electricity generation, you're extraordinarily location constrained because you need to go not only where the resource is, obviously, but you need to go where there's land available and you need to go where you can get an interconnection, as yeah. you said. And that's hard now. But if you if you remove that constraint, you can go where the cheapest land is, the easiest permitting, don't need to worry about interconnection, uh, and you can direct connect to load, you can actually cut some physical costs out of the system too. So it's this like theoretically this massive unlock. Yeah, all your T and D costs vanish, right? There's no T and D costs. It's all. It's just the power. It's just the cost of the power itself, which, as we know, is super, super, super cheap these days. I mean, that's kind of what all the heat battery guys say. The reason this one is a bigger deal than the last one. Uh, the reason so many things are changing is just the renewables have gotten so, so, so cheap that there's just lots more to do with them now. Yeah, though I, I one of my underhyped things, which we'll come back to, is one of the reasons why the renewables have gotten so, so, so cheap thing is not really true today. Um, but I'll, I'll come back to that one. Okay, uh, okay. Intriguing. Uh, all right, so let's, uh, we could talk about thermal storage forever, but let's go move on to your, you've got uh, onshoring and friendshoring underhyped. I've got thermal storage underhyped. What's your first overhyped? All right, so this admittedly, I can't tell. This is the one that I was struggling with. Like, is this really hyped or was this just like a brief <laughs> flare-up in energy Twitter world? I don't I don't really know. So I, I guess my first question to you is going to be, do you think this is hyped? But my answer is electric stovetops. And the, the reason for that is because it, you know, maybe, I don't know, six months ago, something like that, there was this just like raft of articles and they weren't just in energy Twitter land. Like this was, this showed up in the New York Times and a bunch of other places talking about induction stoves and, you know, this, this debate, uh, between induction stoves and gas stoves. And then it like wrapped in even a little bit. I think I saw something about it on top chef and how the top chef chefs hate induction stoves. And like, it, it seems to be this big thing. And the reason, assuming it is this big thing, the reason that I think it is overhyped is that from a climate context, I don't think it really matters. Like at the end of the day, it's not, your stove is not a significant load in your home. And so you can electrify it or not. And I guess maybe it matters if you care about shutting off the gas altogether. But at the end of the day, the total impact on energy consumption, where that comes from, and ultimately on emissions is going to be negligible. And I would like much rather spend, if we're going to talk about consumer choices that affect climate, you, what car you drive, how you commute, how you heat your home, those things matter. How you cook doesn't really matter. Yes. Um, I'll push back a little bit on when I first saw this on your list, I thought you were specifically talking about these electric cooktops with batteries embedded uh, in them. I think those are cool, actually. There's, I, have, I like those more for a bunch of reasons. Yeah. Those are super cool. I, I know that was gonna that was gonna wound me if that was your overhyped <laughs> one because I I love hyping those. I don't think those are hyped enough because nobody really knows about them yet. But <laughs> yeah. um, but no, I mean I mean induction stoves in general and electric cooktops. Yeah, the, the one thing I push back on is is I I absolutely agree that relative to 
greenhouse gas emissions or, or, or energy use or any real physical metric, stoves are very low on the list of, of concerns. You're much uh, better off switching out your car, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a reason it's on your overhyped list. And I think the reason is that it was drafting on the gas stove hype, basically, like on the gas stove controversy. I think that which the, was more the, about like local air quality health stuff. Than yeah, it was climate, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And, and and about you know uh, uh, jackbooted liberal thugs um, coming to take all the things that you love and hold precious. Well, but to to, to just for a second on that, I guess what I'm saying is like. Yeah, you could characterize the people who are doing gas stove bans as jackbooted liberal thugs, but like why why the gas stove ban in the first place? Why is that the fight to pick? Well, I think it's about I think you 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 mentioned it in passing. It is about whether to hook homes up with gas at all, right? Like if you've if you've got the electric car, you've got your your solar panels and your heat pump, the only reason you're still hooked up to the gas system at all is the stove. So in a sense, it's like it's like the 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 mopping up remainder of of home energy use. But it's the but it's a but is it a binary thing? You either can cut off your gas connection to your house, or you can't. You know, this reflects sort of in some sense an admirable kind of quantitative carbon brain. Like we're going after the carbon. This is not where the carbon is. Why are we spending time on this? But I feel like the right like they don't they don't care that gas stoves are a relatively small part part of gas use they've they've recognized that this is a cultural battle that resonates beyond energy people and i feel like the energy world the climate and energy world is full of like wonks and technocrats and quant quants you know who who are not as literate as they should be in the language of these cultural battles and in and lacks what I think ought to be like the desire to fight them. You know, like we just run away from them. Uh, like the, like the, the right starts a huge fuss about gas stoves and we run away and talk about something else. I feel like we need to start learning how to win these things, even though, as you say, on, in some sense, the amount of hype around stoves generally wildly out, outpaces their real significance. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. We we could probably move on from this one, but like, I guess all I'd say is it, maybe you've characterized me right as this like <laughs> overly quantitatively minded climate person. But but my only reaction to that is like the climate doesn't really care who wins this battle, right? Like, I, I don't think it really matters in the context of climate change. And uh, that's the thing I'm focused on. So I would, you know, there's we could do a gas stove ban. It's not really going to matter. You could do a, a gas boiler ban. That would be a much more difficult to pull off thing, but a much more impactful thing if you wanted to do something that mattered. I just, I get confused. Yeah. And they, and they are doing, you know, there are like broader gas bans, gas hookup bans out there. It is, it is uh, a little odd that they started with stoves, but you know, I think hearts and minds matter, even in the long-term battle, I think hearts and minds matter. And this is a hearts and minds. Like if you convince people to think in those jackbooted liberal thug terms, then they're just going to apply that frame to the next thing we come up with. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we got at some point we got to like fight that fight, but let's move on. Um, your first overhyped is electric stoves. So my first overhyped, I, I hesitated a little bit with this because in a sense, 
as much hype as there is about them, there's almost an equal amount of people out trying to unhype them, <laughs> you know, anti-hype. There's almost as much anti-hype as there is hype. So I don't know if this sort of counts, but mine is SMRs or just, um, yeah, small modular nuclear reactors. They are incredibly hyped, I think, well beyond our circles, right? Like something about the idea of SMRs has grabbed onto the imagination of... Of who? Of, I, I think that I think they're well, hyped in two circles. Normies. I don't know about normies. I think they're hyped in. My sense is they're hyped in some clean energy climate person circles, and then they're hyped in a corner of tech world. Like there's a bunch of VCs yes. who, who really hype the shit out of them. But but you know I don't think normies, so to speak, with with quotation marks, so that I don't, normies don't get mad at me. But you know I don't think that like the average person <laughs> knows what a small modular reactor is. Do you? I don't. This is clearly this is a theme in our in our show is our utter mystification about what normal people do and don't think about or know. I don't know. I feel like um, advanced nuclear, like nuclear renaissance, nuclear is better now. It's smaller and cooler and safer. I feel like some of that has drifted beyond. But you're right. I think the hype that is most bothering me is among, but it's among some powerful people. Powerful people in cor corporations looking for. Um, ways to decarbonize themselves are ordering these things. Like you have like cities and utilities pretty seriously. You had this weird announcement from Microsoft the other day. I don't know if you tracked that. They didn't that. really announce anything. They just are, they just put out a job spec and then a bunch of people started writing articles about it. They just said we're right. hiring well, for somebody looking, to look into SMRs. Right, right, right. So, so the tech people are very serious about it. And, um, I think the 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 DOE is extremely <laughs> enthusiastic about it. Okay, um, so tell me why why is this overhyped? I just think well, two reasons. One concept I'm trying to bang on to the point that I can push it out to wider circles uh, uh, beyond our circles is simply yes, we have variable renewable energy that is going to be the heart of our grid. Yes, that means we need balancing. And I just want people to see nuclear not as some sort of special, unique kind of power, but simply one of the options on the table for balancing uh, longer-term renewable energy. One among others, there are other options. There's there's geothermal, there's longer-term storage, there's e-fuels, whatever. And there are, I think, lots and lots, there's lots and lots of action and development and innovation in this space in the longer term um, firm power space. So one, I just want people to reframe nuclear as not the option, but an option for balancing out renewable energy. Because I think a lot of people have it in their heads that like renewable energy is just useless because you have to back it up 100%. And so why not just go straight to nuclear, which is more familiar? Um, you know, I think I want to break people of that. And two, you know, on, more on the details, it's just that we haven't really seen a lot of nuclear plants get built that are actually small or actually modular, <laughs> right? Like, I, I, I think that the whole notion of shrinking the overall size of the project and then shrinking the sub parts of the project so that they can be constructed in factories and shipped to the site. That's the vision, right? Like that, that's how you're going to reduce costs is you start making things in factories over and over again, the same way you get learning curves because nuclear has resisted 
learning curves. And it's a and it's a great idea, but it's not really painting out the way I think people think it's painting out. There aren't a lot of small or or modular and and, and a lot of and, you know if you talk to the people at the DOE, the loans office, they'll tell you what needs to be replicated and done the same way over and over again is not necessarily the the hardware, the chunks of hardware, it's construction practices. It's the construction subparts of building a giant project. Our problem is that we keep doing first of a kind, you know, bespoke one-off construction projects where everybody's figuring everything out as they go and they're all going over. So what DOE wants is 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 to systematize that stuff, the sort of the operational and construction part of. They think that's a bigger deal than the actual pieces of the plant. So even on nuclear, even within nuclear itself, I'm not sure SMRs are gonna are necessarily the the answer to getting more nuclear, but that's controversial, maybe. So I was when I when you sent over your list. So we, we sent lists ahead of time, obviously, so we we would know we wouldn't cross over too much. I was ready to like disagree with you 100 percent on this one, and now upon your explanation, I'm I'm ready to disagree <laughs> like 25 percent. I think. Well, good. I got 75 percent of the way there. <laughs> yeah, you mostly got there. I mean, I think that. Uh, I, I agree with your framing that the the right way to think about nuclear and SMRs as a subcategory within nuclear is as a suite of options. And, and I agree with you that there are other options there as well. Now, there is no silver bullet there. Every one of those options, including nuclear, has a host of challenges to overcome. So you know, it's, it should be in that mix, but it should be considered as, a, as an option in that mix. And it has some unique characteristics that are particularly attractive in theory about it. And this is nuclear, not just SMRs, but obviously it's extraordinarily energy dense. If you are talking about a real SMR or micro reactor, if you want to go even smaller than that, you know, you could put it closer to load. You can cite it anywhere in theory. In theory, they're super awesome. I mean, I won't, I definitely will not argue with that. In theory, they answer a lot of very specific difficulties with other sources. Well, now I think you get to the crux of the thing, which is like there's this wide gulf between the theory of what an SMR could do and the reality of what we've seen them do. And then this is where I think the discourse all always unravels because the question is why is there such a gulf there? No one disagrees that there's a gulf. And the answer, depending on who you talk to, is either because the U.S. can't get its, and many countries, in fact, can't get their act together to license these things and get them built such that we will start to see that learning curve that you were describing and and reach that promised land. Or it's that these things were never meant to be cheap and citable anyway. And so it's a it's a failed promise. And I, you know, I don't know how to like bridge that divide exactly, except to say that if I'm leaning in a direction right now, it is that I know we need this class of thing. I know that this is one of the relatively few options we have to solve this class this class of problem. And mm-hmm. so I'd like to see what we can do to give it a real shot. Yeah, my my only worry, and this and this will just be my final comment is I I, I totally agree. Let's give it a shot. Let's let's. I'm all for R and D. I'm all for first of a kind, you know, um, uh, demonstration projects and things like that. What I don't want is the sort of generalized hype around SMRs to translate into just yet another round of a l- large and historically corrupt and incompetent industry 
getting another giant round of subsidies dumped on its head for ultimately nothing, which is what the which is the nuclear industry, basically the history of the nuclear industry. And I just don't want uh, you know I don't want this to be a wedge issue where you just end up with more of the same kind of historical flailing we've had in that, um, you know, like the industry itself needs, badly needs some discipline imposed on it. And I don't want it to, you know, I don't want this to be an excuse to get more, just to get more subsidies. Yeah, I just... Okay, let's move okay, on. fine. Uh, I feel like every one of these we should do like an entire episode on. I know, I know. This is what I'm realizing. What have we, what have we bitten off here? What are we doing? <laughs> Uh, your second underhyped, uh, uh, go for it. All right. So this one's underhyped, but not in a positive way. I think it's, it's underappreciated how big an impact this is having, which is the impact of interest rates being higher for longer on clean energy, both the industry and deployment of the technologies. Yeah. I'm glad you put this on your list because I have, I have a vague spidey sense that it's a big deal, but I have not, <laughs> I think to your point, perhaps I have not actually stopped and taken a close look at what it, what it means and what it's doing. Yeah. I mean, I've been meaning, and I probably will at some point do uh, a whole episode on this. I'm, I, it's concerning, right? So high level, you know, most clean energy technologies, the thing about them is that they are high capex, low opex. And so you finance the thing upfront, you pay more upfront for it, you finance it, and it ends up being hopefully cheaper over the long term, right? That's for our, for our uh, um, amateur listeners, that's capital costs and operating costs. They're high capital costs, but cheap to operate. Right. So think of, think of solar and wind. You pay a lot to get your solar panels or, or wind, but then the wind is free and the solar is free. And that's contrast to, say, natural gas. You build the thing. The thing may be cheaper to build, but then you got to keep paying for natural gas over time. And because they're high capex, low opex, that makes them particularly sensitive to the cost of financing. And of course, mm-hmm. the cost of financing is tied to the cost of, of uh, capital, which is tied to interest rates. And that's just for for those technologies. It's also, you know, it's also true of other technologies that are coming down the cost curve, starting more expensive, like electric vehicles, for example. And I, this has been known. This is not a new thing. Um, everybody for years, I remember talking about this, you know, a decade ago, we were saying, oh, look at all this growth in, in wind and solar, but like someday interest rates are going to rise and, and then it's going to be tough. And we're there. And it's having a real impact, just to give you a few data points. And, and can I just insert here, just to, t- I, I'd be remiss if I didn't. We had a whole decade <laughs> of insanely low interest rates during which we really should have taken advantage of that. Like now that they're rising, now that we're hitting all these problems, I think we're going to be looking back like, boy, those that was those were nice times, weren't they? We really should have like gone gangbusters while we could, while we had low interest rates instead of faffing about with austerity and deficit hysteria and the rest of it. I mean, if you're talking about in a macroeconomic sense, I don't, I have no, no ability to, to comment in the context of clean energy. I think we did make some hay while the sun was shining, at least, you know, this is what got these technologies to the point where they're at today. But, but let me just spend a minute pointing out what I think we're starting to see in the market. So there's lots of different ways that you could point to this, but um, easy one obviously is in the public equities sector, right? So, so far this year, the S and P five hundred is up eight percent as of this recording. The S and P Clean Energy Index is down thirty five percent, and it's basically true across the board, right? So, this is the residential solar 
companies. This is the manufacturers like First Solar. And, you know, if you want to broaden it out, it's the independent power producers like Nextera and a bunch of others. Like this is, this is not a great time. Um, now it, it's coming off of what was a historically great time, right? And that's true of everything. It's particularly true here, but, uh, but, but it's definitely a tougher road at the moment because again, for probably a few reasons, but I think the biggest one is interest rates. That's one thing. A second thing, you know, in the electric vehicle world, I think this is tied, but not exclusively because of this. You're seeing EV manufacturers, some of the big OEMs pulling back a little bit on their manufacturing expansion plans, citing kind of weak demand for EVs right now. And then I'll give you one more data point, which is just that in oil and gas world, the super majors, uh, at least some of them, are announcing at least sort of moderate pullbacks in their plans to expand their clean energy businesses because they're getting a lot of shareholder pressure to focus on the more profitable part of their operation, which remains oil and gas right now. So I I just think it's, you know, it takes a while for this stuff all to bleed through and for you to really see it. But when you take a step back, this was predictable. And I think a lot of people predicted it, but I don't see a lot of people talking about right now how challenging an environment it is for clean energy thanks to high interest rates. Well, yeah. Well, briefly, what should people do with that <laughs> knowledge? Like what can what can be done about it other than suffer? Like is there a checklist of things that you should do in, in, in atmospheres of high interest rates? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think the it's worth noting, this is to you, the point you made earlier. I think one thing that we have grown accustomed to saying is, oh, thank God renewables are so cheap now. And they're not actually today. You know, the PPA prices for renewables have been going up for the past year in the U.S., both because of interest rates and because some component prices had been rising as well. So like, let's, I want, I think we should be careful in the long term. I think we probably agree that trajectory of renewable costs continues to be down, but in the short to maybe midterm, um, the actual delivered cost of energy or you know, mobility, if you're an electric vehicle owner or whatever it is, it might go up if you're choosing the clean option. Yeah. And, and, and how, how midterm is the, is the $6 billion question right there, I think, on, on everybody's mind. I think everybody, not everybody, most people, I think, agree that this is a bump on a longer downward trajectory, uh, one believes and hopes. But of course, like in the long run, we're all dead. Like uh, Keith said, like a, a, a long enough bump is going to disrupt a lot of companies and and I think um, uh, opponents of the clean energy transition will make great hay out of it uh, <laughs> while they can. Right. Okay. So we should move on. Probably. Uh, okay. So my that was my second underhyped thing: interest rates. What's your second underhyped thing? Uh, I went back and forth on this one too <laughs> because I have hyped these in the past and they are getting a little bit of a, a little bit of hype in our world but I think are totally unknown in the larger world which are uh, and you know to this point I don't think they even have a standard terminology yet um, sometimes they're called geogrids it's basically heating district heating using rather than one central source of heat they drill a series of boreholes, a series of small boreholes to take advantage of the high temperatures that exist, whatever, 50 feet down. And then you have a network of pipes that carries that warmed water to each house. Each house has a heat exchanger to pull the heat out. And basically, if you can build one of these things, you have what I think is 
easily the cheapest and cleanest and most efficient way of heating and cooling buildings that exists in the world, as far as I can tell. And so there, there's, um, you know, I did a pod on this uh, a year or two, year and a half ago. They're building a test one in Massachusetts now. I think maybe some campus, I should have looked this up before we started, but some campus I think is building one. And to me, you know, I, I, as I said earlier, I, I've been thinking a lot about heat lately, and this gets this gets to that. But also, you know, district energy is, is difficult in the sense that it's much, much, much easier to build when you're building a new neighborhood or whatever. You just build it in under underneath as you're building it, and much more difficult to do in a retrofit way, retrofitting existing neighborhoods and communities. But this, you know, I think ideally can piggyback a little bit off of natural gas infrastructure, either using the natural gas pipes themselves or using all the rights of way and the holes and the and the tunnels and the and the whatever else. So this, I mean, this is exciting to me for a lot of reasons. One, just the the efficiency and, and cleanliness of it, and the and the kind of the neatness of it, the cleverness of it. But also, uh, this is theoretically something that a natural gas utility could be charged with running. And that's an alternative to natural gas utilities slowly withering and dying, which is what all the natural gas utilities across the country are facing right now. And of course, it's creating enormous political blowback, enormous um, you know, controversy, et cetera. So this at least gives natural gas utilities some vision of the future, that they can look toward and argue about rather than just death. So I'm excited for, for both those reasons. And I, and, and I don't know how much a, a form of district energy is ever really going to be <laughs> hyped in, in the larger society, but I at least want people to be aware that like there is a way for natural gas utilities to transition to something else clean um, th- that exists. Well, setting aside the natural gas utility death spiral thing, which I, I think we should have a separate conversation about another time. I don't agree that that is what they are facing otherwise, uh, or at least, oh, really? yeah, but that, that aside, I do agree with you that the, whatever you want to call these, uh, geogrids or district heating underground networks. thermal heating networks is the boring is the boring term i agree that they are underhyped because i think they are barely discussed at all in the u.s i think they are more in northern europe right like this is where it there's a there's a real market for it you, you mentioned in the u.s like a cup like you could literally count on one hand i yeah. think the, yeah they're nascent at best in the, yeah. in the u.s yeah but i i agree with you i think they're actually quite interesting uh i think that you're right that like in theory, if you could do it, it's it's maybe at least in some places going to be the most efficient way to heat buildings in in a region. I also though agree with you that like it's a really really tall order if it's not a greenfield development, and so that's what I've always struggled with is like how do you like awesome and may, maybe some campuses and things like that could pull it off, but if you want this to really scale, is it realistic to imagine that's going to happen? anywhere other than new developments and then these these campuses that sort of control the entire district themselves. Yeah, this is why I was a little iffy on including this because I have, like, I'm charmed by it and I love it and I have high hopes for it, but it does require, it's one of those things, like you, you mentioned one, I think, signal feature of technologies, but another thing I think that you find in common a lot of, across a lot of these technologies is they're, they're cheaper and they work better if you plan 
upfront. They require a lot of planning and coordination, often across jurisdictional lines, across entities, across different kinds of entities owned by different people. They just require a lot of planning and coordination. And we're not great at that. Like, like I think these could be put, I think you could retrofit neighborhoods to put these in. And I think on some time horizon, probably relatively quickly as these things go, it would pay itself back. But you got to just get all those ducks in a row, all those entities lined up, all those, you know, different layers of government and different, all the households. And yeah, so I agree. It's a, it's a steep climb. I guess it's going to come down to sort of how severe the need for clean heat uh, gets and how, and how cheap heat pumps get, et cetera, et cetera. Like what are the, what are the other options in this space? But I, uh, but I love them. So I like to hype them whenever I can. Fair enough. I mean, it's, it's a underhyped relative to very, very, very little hype. So it's hard to disagree with. <laughs> yeah, I know it could hardly, it's, it's <laughs> zero hyped. So yeah. by definition under, uh, so, okay. You're so, We've got three of our four here. So your second overhyped. All right. My second overhyped thing is voluntary carbon markets. And what I mean by overhyped is like, okay, so what's happening right now is that there is a series of extraordinarily painful exposés about all the (laughs) follies of the voluntary carbon market, particularly forestry-related carbon credits in in Africa, especially. There's been a bunch of articles. I mean, you say a series now, but I feel like that series of exposés has been going on for decades now. There's been nothing but exposés for decades now. There's, it's not like there's any other kind of story about these things. I think it comes in waves, right? There was like a big yeah. wave of that. Well, And this is, I mean, getting to my own history, like there, I was involved in voluntary carbon markets in like 2007, 2008. There was a wave then, uh, which, which that along with the economic collapse basically killed the market. And then there's a new wave now. And yeah, maybe there's been some in the meantime too, but, um, but, but it's, it's getting louder and louder at the moment and it looks like it's getting worse and worse. And, you know, I, I, the reason that I say, and I, I agree with basically all of those, I agree with the exposés. I agree that that market is a mess and broken and there's a lot of vaporware there. I like totally agree with all of that. The reason I think it's overhyped is it's a pretty small market at the end of the day, it's about it's about a two billion dollar total global market for voluntary carbon credits. There's a much bigger compliance market you could talk separately about, but like, it's just not that big. And you know, it's been growing a bit, but it's not growing that fast. And so, there's a part of me that just thinks, look, like, absolutely, we should be calling out these absolute BS, you know, carbon projects that are delivering no value to anybody. Um, but at the same time, I just want to be clear that like, it's not a, it's not a big piece of where spending is going when it comes to decarbonization. And I don't think it was going to be a big piece. Now, maybe I, I want to separate out this kind of new world of carbon removal purchases, which, which hopefully won't get too wrapped up in this stuff. Uh, cause I think there is promise there, but you know, I, I just think it's overhyped because we're, Right now, it's in the news, and this is very much in the mainstream news, um, and it's just pretty small at the end of the day. Well, I thought that I thought that it was responsible for a pretty. I thought that corporate procurement of renewables via these markets was actually a pretty big chunk of of renewable build out. So those are two different things, right? So the 
voluntary carbon markets are the purchases of carbon credits, which are mostly forestry and uh, stuff like that. And then corporate renewables procurement generally does not get counted within that same category. And yes, that has been, and I would argue has been actually quite a net positive, like really has been beneficial to the renewable industry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I had those confused, which is why this one, this one confused me, but I see now, I see now what you're saying. And also, I think in that latter market, the move away from yearly recs to um, hourly to the sort of this this attempt to build a twenty four seven portfolio that a lot of corporations are involved in, I think that's also a big deal. But as you say, voluntary carbon markets are, you know, it's funny. I think this is probably the best answer for overhyped because this is one that definitely has gotten out of our world and exists in the larger world because probably there's one of the most common, I bet it's the same for you. It's one of the most common questions I get still to this day, which is like, I'm buying an airplane flight, you know, is it worth offsetting? Should I click the thing? Yeah. Right. Should I click yeah. the thing? Is is this offset worthwhile? Is this program through my utility uh, uh, worthwhile? All these kind of things. And yeah, I think, although I do think the turn to carbon removal in that market is interesting. And to repeat a theme, we could do a whole episode on that. I have my, I have some hope and some skepticism about how far voluntary markets are going to get on carbon removal. Yeah, I guess the only point I wanted to make here is like, I'm all for this continued, like, I think what's happening now is this this big shakeout in, in that market, specifically voluntary carbon markets, and mostly the sort of nature-based and particularly the forestry stuff. I think that's a good thing that that is happening, but I just want to remind everybody, it's a very small market in a global context. Okay, last one, I think. Uh, which yes. is your final overhyped thing. My final overhyped. Uh, my second overhyped is the whole discussion of minerals. Um, oh, I, I wish we had more time. I really, <laughs> we need a whole I'm, ready to, I'm ready to go to war on this one. All right, <laughs> you, you go ahead. You think it's appropriately hyped? Uh, totally. I'll, 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 I'll just say two things, and we have to be, uh, by necessity, I have to be a little bit glib here. We don't have much time, but I'll, I'll, I'll just say two things. One is, this has definitely escaped our world. Like, I think at this point, the idea that batteries and electric vehicles use materials that are mined in horrible ways and that are environmentally destructive, that notion has escaped our world and now comes back at me all the time from randos <laughs> on, online and uh, whatever. So I think that idea has grabbed on to the public imagination. And on that score, <clears throat> I just think it's incredibly important to remember that there is no story, no matter how negative, about the materials needed for the clean energy transition that adds up to anything close to the ongoing day-to-day -day destruction of the fossil fuel system. I think that's that you probably agree on. I think that's starting to come out in, in more and more papers and more and more studies. Just if you if you tally up pure environmental damage, digging up fossil fuels every day to keep shoveling in our engines is just way worse than any conceivable alternative. I, I see you. This is okay. But I'm going to go again. the other way now. The, the way you're going to disagree with is my second point. And on okay, the second, well, <laughs> on the second point is about <laughs> the second point is about shortages. Is this going to be? Uh, 
a meaningful uh, handbrake, you might say, on the clean energy transition? Is, is availability of materials and minerals going to be a meaningful constraint on the speed of clean energy transition? And I just think here, like there's, this is a big sprawling area. There's lots of general things you could say about it. It's hard to generalize, but my just basic, I go back to first principles here. And my basic instinct is that of all the things capitalism does well, <laughs> finding uh, ways around material shortages is like genuinely its number one thing that it does well. It's it's like these, this is what markets know how to solve. And I just think a, between finding new sources and substituting, of course, you know, historically substitution is one of the huge answers here has, 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 has defanged a lot of sort of hyped, uh, uh, materials problems in the past. Um, I just think substitution plus new sources over the midterm, mid to long-term is going to solve this. I agree that there will be years, couple of years, choke points here and there, as we've all, as we've already seen a couple of materials get tight. Um, but I just think in the fullness of time, the, the, the multi-billion dollar global market, the entire global transition that's running now is just going to stampede over those problems. And in retrospect, we'll look back and I think we will, that will not be as big of a deal as we are now expecting it to be. You disagree. Right, so I will say, uh, well, yeah, once again, I was ready to disagree 100% and back down to 25%. But um, I, yeah, so I, I, I do agree. I mean, the way I put it to people is like, look, there is no free lunch in decarbonization. Whatever we transition to mm -hmm. from what we do today, there's going to be some cost to that. One of the big costs is going to be a lot more mining um, and dealing with a lot more minerals. That That's true. And I do not think that should be a reason to slow down. So I agree with you on that first point generally. Um, on the second point, I also agree with you in the fullness of time comment. <laughs> I think what I would say is that the time periods during which we are able to do particularly to unlock more of a particular mineral or to do the substitution are not generally one to two years. What scares me is that the average time it takes to build a new mine right mm -hmm. now, pretty much everywhere in the world, 15, 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. And these markets do move, but they move at that pace. And so what worries me is not like, we'll never figure out a way to expand the clean energy economy because we're going to run out of name your mineral. It's that we'll have like periods of more like five years or 10 years mm. where we do have a shortage and the shortage doesn't translate to we can't sell any more electric vehicles. It translates to higher costs for electric vehicles and that translates to lower demand and that's five to 10 years of, you know, stalled growth that we can't afford. So for me, it's not that I agree with you, we'll, we'll have enough stuff to make the things that we need to make, but because this transition is occurring so quickly and you can already start to see the geopolitical impacts and all these other things, like I think that there is there are real possibilities of of crunches that have a meaningful impact on the pace of adoption of key technologies. And that's what I think we need to keep an eye out for in in kind of minerals world. Yeah, that'll be interesting. That I think is the that is the real question here. Like the the worth, you know, the environmental it's definitely an environmental advance to do this transition that I think is 
obvious to both of us and not obvious, I'm sh- I don't think, to the general public now because of this spate of hysterical, bizarre anti-EV articles that have come out really recently. I don't know what – I don't know if that's just a, a function of EVs growing now and starting to like – pose a real threat or whatever, but it seems like there's been a surge of those. So that I, I think is nonsense. This all comes down to how big are those periods of tension? How big are those periods of choke point or, or slowdown or higher costs? And do they mount on one another and, you know, in such a way as they exacerbate one another? Or is it the opposite effect? Do we find ways around within markets or shift to other markets and and the one other the one other thing i throw out here is just that the the danger you're raising is a great reason to think more seriously and systematically about minimizing our need for materials generally you know and that'll be different sector to sector but i did a whole pod on on this question having to do with evs and like one of the things we could do is um walk and bike more <laughs> and drive less and try to reduce VMTs generally. And then you reduce the need for, for lithium, et cetera. And, and if you make, you know, if you, if you improve building codes and make every building airtight, maybe even energy positive, you, you know, you reduce the need, you re, you can reduce the need for materials in a lot of different ways in a lot of different sectors. And I feel like that's kind of been moved to the back burner. And I think material, the whole materials issue might move it back to the front burner. Sure, or you or you lightweight a vehicle so you yeah. get more miles traveled per amount of material. Totally. Yeah. What's so so maybe to to wrap up? Um, I'd love to just hear your thoughts on you've been in this biz for twenty some years now, going on twenty. I don't know what the exact number is. Approaching twenty. A lot of swings up and down. You've interviewed a lot of people. You've tracked this very closely. What's your sort of general feeling about where we are right now in this whole thing? Uh, I, I feel like I'm still like most of me is still riding this cresting wave of like, oh my god, the IRA is su- such a at least for the U.S. I won't I speak know. globally, right? The IRA is such a big deal, I know. and even within our industry, like I feel like we don't talk enough about how it's the biggest climate bill ever by like orders, orders of magnitude, and it's just like transforming all these markets. And, and also, let me just throw one thing in there: it's like not just discussing it itself, but the thing is, like the IRA put aside all this money, and what you're seeing now is that money trickling out. So, like. Almost every day I get an email from the DOE, you know, or the IRS or some agency like, you know, 407 billion going out to this, 500 billion going to this, 2 billion more for, you know, whatever, uh, power line monitoring. So IRA is translating into this constant stream of money going out the door to cool things. And I feel like one of the things that's incumbent on on you and I and, and people in our world generally is to not just say like we did this great thing IRA and now let's move on but to talk about the stream the you know the 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 sort of floodgates that have opened because of IRA just keeping track of that money on a day-to-day basis because it's just pouring out now right so i guess what i was going to say is mostly that's the sort of upwelling of that that opportunity is is the pre- the predominant feeling it is tempered to some degree by i i am nervous about the interest rate thing and what impact that's ultimately going to have on this market. So, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, things are pushing in opposite directions. I think the overall trend line is still up and to the right, but 
Um, but it's not going to be an easy journey. And I, I guess the, fi- the very final thing that I will say is uh, my current bee in my bonnet is uh, people talking about, quote unquote, hard to decarbonize or difficult to decarbonize sectors. Uh, that was almost one of my overhyped. That was that was my runner up for over. For OK, maybe we agree on this. My, my reason I'm annoyed about that is because by implication, it implies that like energy is an easy to abate sector. And I just I don't I do not see that being remotely true. So I don't I don't want to make it come across like like it's easy. And especially just because we passed this big bill like that didn't solve it. Yeah, I think uh, I I think the way to say that is technologically hard to decarbonize sectors are going to be easier to decarbonize than I think is expected, technologically speaking. And I think that's been a theme in the clean energy transition now for for decades is that the technological challenges turn out to be a lot more solvable than we think in advance. That's almost oh, always. I'm, saying the, I'm almost saying the opposite. I mean, oh, I'm really? Saying, I'm saying nothing about the hard to decarbonize stuff. I'm saying the easy, quote unquote, easy to decarbonize stuff is going to be hard. <laughs> All right, uh, Shale, this was a delight as expected. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big uh, fan of the show, even though I frequently tune into the latest episode and feel that uh, feeling in the pit of my stomach where I'm like, man, I wish I had done this episode. <laughs> I wish I had gotten this guest. <laughs> so I may, uh, you know, I may, I may continue duplicating your episodes in the future. Uh, but thanks for uh, coming on and, uh, you know, good luck to you with uh, Catalyst. Thanks, Dave. This was, this was a lot of fun for me as well. And uh, I think we should do it again sometime. Awesome, for sure. Dave Roberts is the writer and host at Volts, a podcast and newsletter on clean energy and politics. He's also a staff writer at Grist. This show is a co-production of Latitude Media and Canary Media. You can head over to canarymedia.com for links to today's topics. Latitude is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and ag, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf. Mixing by Roy Campanella and Sean Marquand. Theme song by Sean Marquand. I'm Shale Khan, and this is Catalyst. Catalyst.